0: Welcome to Plenary Session. I'm Vinay Prasad, I'm an associate professor at the University of California, San Francisco. I'm a practicing he doctor and my interests are medicine, oncology, and health policy. And that's what you're gonna get on Plenary Session. This is season four, hashtag zero COVID. It's zero COVID because we're not gonna talk about COVID. We're back, oncology, medicine, health policy. We've got a lot in store for you. But first, a plug. If you like this podcast, leave us a rating or write us a review. It helps new listeners find the show. You can follow us on Twitter at plenary underscore session. You can email us at plenary session podcast at gmail.com. Give us your suggestions on what we should be covering. And we got a new YouTube channel, Vinay Prasad MD MPH. Follow us on YouTube. I'm putting up a 10-part series on reading and interpreting cancer clinical trials. You'll want to watch it there. And if you really love this show, you can back us on patreon.com. Patreon backers get access to slides for lectures I give on Plenary Session. And with that, let's start the show. I'm back in Plenary Session in real-life edition, and I'm joined in the office of Dr. Nina Shaw, the legendary UCSF professor of medicine. Dr. Shaw is a multiple myeloma expert. She is an expert in CAR T-cell therapy, and she is somebody who fellows love working with. I mean, this is somebody who I've heard nothing but good things about. Nina, thank you so much for sitting down and chatting.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: So you're, you're, you're a fan favorite. You're somebody who people have said I should seek out and sit down and talk with you. And you say, and they told me that you're the only person who's going to talk as fast as I talk. That's true. I'll give you a run for your money. <laughs> okay, good. All right. So I wonder if we could start by a little bit about who you are and uh, where you did your training. Um, so I understand you did your undergraduate at Harvard College. And Correct. you were interested in neuro- neurobiology back then.
1: Yes. I did a major in cognitive neuroscience and actually focused on salivary immunoglobulin A levels after religious experience. That was my senior thesis. And
0: does the salivary immunoglobulin A level change after religious experience?
1: Uh, not statistically significant, but <laughs> trending. Trending? Yes, we get some confidence intervals in that.
0: Oh, so you had already you had already learned a lot about biomedicine. Yes, <laughs> um, of I tried. Yeah, and then you went to do your um, medical degree at at, at NYU. Correct. And you stayed on in New York City for a while. You did some research there, you did your residency there, um, and then ultimately decided to, to go to Anderson for your fellowship. Correct. I want to know about what it was like to go to Anderson. You know, I remember with fondness the time I, the times I visited Anderson. It's been a few times over the years. It is an impressive place. It is a city of, of cancer medicine. What was it like when you visited, when you went there? What was it like to work at Anderson?
1: I really consider my time at MD Anderson to be a privileged time. And anybody who ever gets to go there, to work there, or be there, uh, they will all agree it's a wonderful experience. It is a freestanding cancer center, which has its own um, just benefits of, of everyone being focused on curing cancer. And I really enjoyed that. One of the reasons I chose to train there was, as you mentioned, it is like a city. I believe there's like Thirty thousand people that work associated with it, or something ridiculous, um, and and there are so many facets of it. They they really uh, try to make the entire cancer experience center in one place, and I think that allows patients to truly feel like their journey is is focused on them and their disease. Uh, so I really enjoyed that. What drove me to to. To go there was that they had such innovation. You know, they were building this proton building, and it seemed like they were really focused on spores uh, and other funding, and then other funding for junior investigators. For example, they really focused on applying for Ks and, and ASCA YAs. And so I felt that we would be very supported. And the most important reason I went there was Wang Ki Hong, who is the mm-hmm. Division yeah. of Cancer oh. Medicine leader. And he took such interest in the fellows. And now, as a faculty member, I think to myself, oh my goodness, this person took his Thursday mornings to be with the fellows, this guy, this giant, who was a division head at MD Anderson. Mm -hmm. And having that kind of person support you from that level and supporting the youngers really was so motivating and inspiring for me. And we still talk about Dr. Hong to this Mm -hmm. day, all my co-fellows and I.
0: That's wonderful. Now, I'm wondering, you you ended up um, going into BMT and being on the faculty there for several years. When did you decide in your fellowship that that was the right direction for you, myeloma, BMT, cellular therapy?
1: Yeah, so I always knew that I was going to do hematologic malignancies, mainly because that means no surgeons need applied, so I don't have to work with any surgeons. But uh, so that's what I liked about it. And, and, you know, I think multiple myeloma is a wonderful internist malignancy because it affects so many parts of the bodies of the body, and it also is a chronic malignancy, unfortunately. But also, since people live for a long time, you build really nice relationships with people over time. So I, I like that aspect. I really liked the internal medicine aspect of it. And so I wanted to do myeloma, but I also had a strong interest in immunology because of my time after my residency, I did a postdoc research fellowship uh, in the lab of Raphael Klein's uh, at Columbia, and I had learned a lot about immunotherapy, well, I should say immunology, cellular immunology, um, T cells, dendritic cells and so I wanted to apply that and just serendipitously I met my mentor, Dr. E.J. Fall, who was looking at using cord blood derived immune cells uh, to treat cancer and that's how I got involved in sort of the stem cell transplant of it, aspect of it because back then you couldn't do cell therapy without being a transplanter that was and that's changed since then but but and we can talk about that, but that's how I got into transplant really because I wanted to do cell therapy for myeloma
0: that's interesting, and but your interest in cell therapy is, I mean, it would then predate even uh, chimeric antigen receptor work by Carl June, predates. BCMA CAR-T, you were in it at the ground level.
1: Yeah, people thought I was weird because I was doing this project with cord blood derived NK cells and I was going to use them uh, for myeloma and so I figured out uh, with Dr. Schwal's help obviously um, how to expand them from cord blood and show that they were effective against myeloma and I took this project to VAIL and the VAIL workshop leader laughed at me and said no one would ever do this, no one would ever take cells from someone and that's a ridiculous idea. Um, needless to say, as, as a first year fellow, I kind of you know hung my head down and, and walked back to my hotel room. But um, but we didn't know at the time, back in two thousand seven or eight, eight that this was going to take off like this.
0: Yeah, I think uh, n- nobody would have guessed, at least. Um, and uh, you know, I once talked to Jim Allison, and he was saying in those years, um, people were still quite critical of even CTLA four inhibition. Absolutely.
1: Yeah. Back then, there was like the AKT mTOR inhibitor time, you know, and right. and very quickly, everyone just started singing the immunology tune. I was like, who are these Johnny Come <laughs> Come on, we're the OGs. <laughs>
0: That's right. Everyone is in their TKI, corona, P-Chuck right. protein inhibitors, and now now am yeah. at them. Well, I was interested in immune systems. Yeah, I'm working at PD-1. You
1: yeah, you were. <laughs> you don't even know what that was before. So you said
0: something that very few people say, but it's something that I believe. Uh, you said it kind of tongue-in-cheek, but maybe there's some truth to it. Um, one of the reasons you like hemo malignancies is you made the joke that you don't have to involve yourself with a surgeon. Correct. We love surgeons. Of course, you love surgeons too. Um, but there's some truth in it, which is that One of the things about heme malignancies that distinguishes itself from solid tumors, which is also something that appeals to me, is the fact that you really are in the driver's seat as the medical hematologist, oncologist. Um, You make a lot of the decisions. So that appeals to you as well.
1: Yeah. I mean, I don't think anyone's going to be surprised to hear that I like to be in the driver's seat, but um, it just, I've experienced um, a really nice patient-doctor uh, interaction just in hemo malignancies. And I, that's not to say it doesn't happen in solid tumors, but I like being able to be sort of the captain of the team. And, I, and that comes with a lot of inpatient time and all those other things and people that are neutropenic forever and graft-versus-host disease and all those other things that come with hemo But it's a very satisfying niche of cancer therapy. And it comes with a really nice place to do immune therapy as well as cellular therapy.
0: When I talk to residents and when I talk to medical students about what careers to pursue in medicine, you know, one of the distinctions I draw is between driver and passenger. And I hope people out there don't get angry at me because I'll (laughs) take the heat for this. Um, What I mean by passenger fields, there are a lot of passenger fields in medicine that people go into. There's nothing wrong with being in a passenger field. I think it's great for certain personality types. Some people love it. Um, Things I think as passenger are anesthesia. You know, your goal is to facilitate the operation, but your goal is not to walk in there and tell people whether or not you think the surgery ought to be done. Um, pathology. Your goal is to help people make diagnoses which is crucial I think for medical care but you're not the one deciding whether or not you're gonna pull the trigger on treating someone with plasma cell leukemia at 2 in the morning. Um, Another passenger field I think is radiology. They support us. We need them. I couldn't live without them Uh, but they're not deciding these things. Um, I think there's some degree of personality that helps us choose and those of us who go into IM subspecialties or surgical subspecialties maybe we like to be drivers. What do you think? Do you think that appe- that's
1: something about that. I think there is some additional responsibility to being where the buck stops, and certainly the buck stops with me in my Epic in basket and in the inpatient <laughs> the, service. Or worse. Yeah, and um, and and that's good and bad, and maybe you. I mean, I've never thought of it that way, uh, but perhaps that's one of the reasons that I like oncology in general, um, as an in internal medicine uh, subspecialty, and particularly heme malignancies. And, and you're right there that ultimately I have to make a decision. I'm the person who designs the chemo. I'm the person who consents the patient. And I'm the person who decides, um, you know, how they're going to, wh- what path we're going to go. And then I'm the person who has the talk, the hospice talk. So there's a lot there that I think oncologists in general have to do. Um, th- that does require a d- additional aspects of the 360 of medicine.
0: Were you always so comfortable with all these parts, or when did you feel like you grew into being an oncologist?
1: I have always liked oncology from a scientific perspective, but I would say that I've really grown into it in the last Four years five years and that's funny because I've been an oncologist for a very long time but being personally comfortable with patients has taken a long time and that's weird because I'm actually a very big people person sure. as you probably figured out but what I wasn't was somebody who was willing to be emotional with the patients um, because I felt that and I don't know if this is because I really, really valued my time and efficiency as a working mom, Uh, but I really felt like I had to limit how much I interacted personally with patients because it was going to spill into my personal space. And only recently have I really been able to appreciate that that's actually the best part of oncology, um, that you can actually open yourself up. And now I fully embrace that my patients know what's going on with my life and I know what's going on with theirs. And that means that they sometimes call me by my first name and I've gotten over that as well. That took me a long time to get over. Um, and that ultimately it's okay to cry with them or to be upset about something with them um, and just feel them. And And so I, I feel like that last part has taken me time, especially in the past few years.
0: That's very interesting. I always feel like the challenge with doing what we do is walking the line between having that empathy, feeling the pain of your patient, but you can never feel all their pain. And if you feel all their pain, it takes you away from the place you need to be to make decisions about what's, best, what's their best interest and to guide them, to advise them, where to some degree you need one foot out of it. How, how do you strike that balance?
1: I think you make a really good point that you can feel some of the pain, but maybe not all the pain, not only for the health of the relationship that you have for the patient, but that you need to walk out of that room and go into the next room for another patient right. who might be getting good news. Right. And you have to feel their happiness, right? So you have to be a chameleon in some respect as a physician, not insincerely, but in in a, in a sort of diverse, flexible way. You have to be able to adjust to whoever's in front of you and whatever day they're having. They they're having that day. And one of the ways that I've tried to do that is actually cognitively to picture myself in that person's chair right then. And I've been really trying to do that more over the past four or five years, so that I can sort of understand where that person is, how long they drove to get here, um, if they were late, why, if they if they were you know had to be in the blood draw if they're fasting, you know, all these other things that maybe make up some of their day. But I don't take that to the next patient because they're not sitting in that chair. Um, so there's just, I think there's ways we all try to do it. Uh, we never do it perfectly, but hopefully I can fine tune that as time goes on.
0: That's the, that's the right answer, I think. I think you've said it very well. And uh, the, the, the fact I can tell you're probably really good at it because uh, one of the things you allude to is you keep trying to be better. And I think that's a hallmark of people who are really good at it. Now I want to ask you this. I have moles in a lot of places, I'm sure you, it may, it may surprise you to hear. <laughs> so, so for of, a
1: cancer doctor, that sounds like a different question, by, oh yeah, by the way. <laughs>
0: I have people who report back to me. Oh, oh. So I, I get a lot of stuff. So, uh, you know, I think people see me and they see someone like, oh, this is the kind of person who likes to know these things, so they tell me things. Good. Okay. <laughs> so, I need to
1: know these people. <laughs>
0: i don't know if you're if you're if you're the kind of person that uh, well i'm sure I think people do confide in you um so here here's the first things I hear the first things I hear is from anyone who ever trains under you or works with you that you know people say you're an absolute joy and delight uh, to have as a mentor um, people tell me that you you know you guide them in part through their research uh that's uh that's commendable because I think there are a lot of mentors out there who sometimes even let that go um, but you also guide them through career decisions through the tough part of life and I think Young people are craving that. They need somebody to ask those questions to. And I don't think they always feel like they can ask it of anybody. Um, have you always been that way? How do you approach mentoring your, your fellows? Um, what, you know, what is it about? How do you think about that?
1: Yeah, I think mentoring is an extremely important job. And I didn't understand what it meant until I had a fantastic mentor. And I was blessed to have a mentor who I looked up to in every respect uh, when I was a fellow and I still look up to her. Um, and she taught me that mentoring is a 360 job. Uh, you have to be a mentor and a sponsor. Um, that's that's sort of part of it. People say that those have to be two different people. It can often be the same person. Um, and you have to be a person who can push when necessary and and not push when necessary, and really try to find the best in the person by understanding him or her. And I've tried to take that to my mentees because I think we've moved from a time where the right answer is, I want to do academic oncology and publish a bunch of papers and get a bunch of grants and, you know, go to a big institution and wear a short white coat forever. You know, that that's, those days are gone. Now it's how do I enjoy the time I have as an oncologist so that I'll be able to give to somebody. And in order to do that, you have to know yourself. And in order to know yourself, someone has to ask you the question, what's the most important thing to you? Is it being near your family? Is it getting an R01? Is it getting independent funding? Is it having weekends off? I mean, these are all things that you may not know about yourself. Yourself or not feel comfortable saying about yourself until someone makes it okay to say the more you know yourself the happier you're gonna be at your job
0: so you're satisfied you'll be happy if your fellow does what is right for them even if it's not the same as your career path
1: absolutely I think that first of all we are not clones and uh, when I see my fellows in fact doing things that I think are actually counter to what they really are good at or enjoy because I, I try to know them very well I tell them I don't think you're going to be happy doing this uh, because I, I was in your position one time and I made this decision and I, I myself wasn't happy and I see myself in that, or uh, I know you very well and I think you would be better off using this awesome skill you have to do that where I see you light up when you do things. Um, and that doesn't have to be cookie cutter it, it anymore, especially there's so many diverse ways you can have a career in oncology. That's one of the best things about it. Right. I think it's
0: really changed a lot even in the last 10 years. Um, the other thing my my sources tell me is that uh, there are lots of conference calls for people who work on trials. And, you know, you're on conference calls too. I'm sure you all the time, all the time, right? You live your life on it, as many trialists do. And here's what they say: They say sources tell me they say uh, when most people are talking on a conference call, they want the world to end. I mean, they're really bored and disinterested. But when Nina Shaw talks on a conference call, they like it. People like listening to you talk. So, um, uh. <laughs> and I feel the same for when I listen to you on uh, in our little uh, Zoom didactics and such. Okay, um, here's my question. My question is, have you always been like this? I mean, so what is, it, what is it, what are they saying? They're saying that, like, you know, you speak dynamically to convey information, you have points you want to make, you're known for coining these phrases, like millennial, which I'm going to ask you about in a minute, um, that, you know, people like, that they think are clever and kind of draw upon some truth. Um, were you always, uh, uh, I think, so... Um, personable in giving speeches, lectures, even casual conference calls, or is it a skill you developed? Um, How did you uh, find that? Is it something you take pride in or think about explicitly?
1: Yeah, I think one of the things that we kind of are subtly taught in medicine is just to be bland. (laughs) (laughs) And I don't like that because I'm very exciting and I'm fun, and I think our job should be fun as well. So one of the reasons maybe that somebody would like to be on a conference call with me is I always make a joke about something because am I if we if we t- take ourselves this seriously over you know an investigator call we're just gonna all be you know dropping dead by Friday so there's no reason to do that and um, a little bit of humor goes a long way people feel more comfortable with each other of course this is all you know within reason you never want to be joking about something that's serious but but there's a lot of times where you know you make an analogy and everyone's like yes you're exactly right it's like that and and it's kind of you know breaks the ice I have always been somebody who uses humor to live life because I think it's a good coping mechanism. Uh, But uh, it's also one thing that makes people at ease. And I think that's one of the hardest things to do A on Zoom and B in life in general as we grow older and more detached from each other in some ways. uh, we, We have to work at making each other feel more comfortable amongst other people.
0: What about when you give, uh, you know, let's say you're giving an oral presentation at ASCO Ash, what are you thinking about then? You know, I go to so many and I feel like people are reading things. I mean, they've been coached to the point of reading, Uh, you know, uh, our studies of a phase two study of uh, the <laughs> body, and I uh, would like to thank the investigators as well. the uh, folks from You know what I mean? Yeah, so totally. what do you tell people? How do you think about doing that?
1: Yeah. Well, I never want to be like the Charlie Brown teacher, you know, like, <laughs> blah, blah, blah. And then people are just, like, falling asleep, emailing their friends, texting their friends. Now, ASH and ASCO actually are a separate thing because you have to be very formal. There's no joking there. There's, like, okay. very subtle, unless you're given, like, an educational talking and have a few jokes. So, but the oral presentation is very formal. When I give other talks, I give tons of, you know, CME or whatever talks, then I all frequently do make some jokes uh, as we tie in data and try to get people to pay attention to what what this means. So like, I'll make a joke like, okay, targeting CD38, it's like Peloton, everybody's doing it. I mean, it gets you know, like, oh, yeah I'll, pay, I'll start paying attention. Because my goal is, I don't want people checking email during my talk. Right. You know, you want people to have come there, spent the time for a reason and get something out of it and leave and they can, you know, check email later.
0: That's funny you say that. That's exactly one of the things I tell people, which is, uh, you know, I've taught a lot of med school classes over the years, and I like to say this. I like to say, um, you know, people out there with your notes and your laptops or whatever, put all that away. Okay, If uh, nothing I say is going to be so important. You need to write this down. Right. However, here's the deal. Here's the bargain. While you're here, listen to what I'm saying. If at any moment of this talk, I disinterest you. Just walk out that door. You know? <laughs> because that's what I want as the speaker, too. Like, it's, I, I want to earn it. Like, you know, my job here is, like, I'm not here to just tell you boring things you could read in a book. I'm here to put it in a context that you otherwise wouldn't get. And and I feel like what I often feel frustrated by is, you know, people are, everyone's glued to their phone I mean, in all walks of life. Right. Right. Um, side note, I went, somebody asked me to give a ride to the airport once. I said, yes, begrudgingly. I don't think I wanted to give this person a ride, but sure. And Ah, ah, the whole ride there, they're looking at their phone. So rude. Exactly. I was like, the only thing that you have to do on this ride is keep me entertained.
1: They could have at least done carpool karaoke. (laughs) Like, that is a minimum requirement in the passenger seat. You run the radio and you sing it.
0: Exactly. You got to keep the the driver driver entertained. Yeah, that's it. Get
1: the XM on there.
0: So how do you, um, I I guess the question for you is, you feel you agree with that? That, like, when you give a talk for a medical class or a CME you want their attention. You want them to be interested by what you're saying and not pulled
1: away. Of course. I mean, anybody who's going to put effort into giving a presentation wants the audience to receive it well. And I have to tell you one of the biggest compliments I enjoy if people say, if they come up to me after the talk and say, that talk was awesome. Then I feel like the time and effort I put into it was, well, worth it. Maybe they got two slides worth of it. Fine. That That's okay. Uh, but that's why I try to speak dynamically, put in jokes, get people's attention back, rephrase what I've said. Uh, and, and, kind of real life contextualize a point I'm trying to make because ultimately a lot of these talks are so practitioners would know maybe what to do with their patients. So I try to make it applicable, not just case-based, but like, hey, you were, you are going to have to think about infusion time. So maybe subcutaneous is going to be good for you. Like really try to put it into something that they can take home uh, because then they will feel like their time was well spent and I'll feel like my time was well spent.
0: Were you like this when you were younger, when you are in high school and college? Were you
1: um, able to give a talk. Yeah. <laughs> well, unfortunately, we don't have enough public speaking opportunities sure. uh, when we're younger. Our kids do it a lot more now, actually. Um, but yeah, I was always very comfortable in front of crowds. And I mean, I always, of course, I was an acapella in, in college. So, yeah, of course, Radcliffe pitches. That's right. I could snap <laughs> like this. So, that, I was fine with that. So, I see. yeah, I never had a problem with that. But, um, but you I, went into music. Of course. Oh, of course. Yes, for sure. I'm like, Straight up, like, there's always music somewhere, unless I'm working, can't okay. work with music. We'll, yes. we'll talk about you that. You can't,
0: like, write papers with music. No, no, I
1: can't do that. I need to be, like, straight that's up that. in karaoke mode. Okay. Yeah.
0: Okay. So, millennial. Yes. It's not your only phrase. I mean, I thought this was very, <laughs> I mean, it's very funny, and it's 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 not just that it's funny, it's that it hits on some, like, eternal, like, some deep truth, and that's why I think some, it resonates with so many people, but my understanding of it is, and tell me if I'm wrong, which is that there's a generation of doctors who grew up in the era of novel therapy, I'm in this generation as well, where I don't know what world pre-bortezomib or Imid. Uh, I wasn't there when Bart patient told him, to give thou to the, the first person. Um, and so I've grown up in a world where there have always been multiple options. I didn't just have Mel. Um, but doctors of a different generation, they have a different experience. Um, and you think that's that's an important distinction when it comes to how we think about multiple myeloma. I wonder if you might talk about this term yeah. you
1: coined. Yeah, I did coin the term millennial because there is a before and after. There's a before and after VRD, basically, in my mind. Uh, and I, I'll even put the little in the old. And we, as myeloma doctors of this generation, take it for granted that someone's going to probably respond to induction therapy. And that was not true, maybe even when I was in medical school. So I remember actually my first year of residency, Bortezomib got approved. So um, I do think that there's this, you know, it's like a given like, um, excuse me, I deserve to have a patient who is going to respond. So and I think we all, I, I for sure feel that way. Uh, and I, I, I thought a lot about it uh, over like 2018, 19, cause it was just like a flurry of like CAR T data and things like that. And now people had a hundred percent response rate and Come on, this doesn't happen in relapse refractory myeloma. So, and then people are like, oh, I was just another CAR T. I'm like, oh my goodness, what is going on here? So, um, so that's why I coined the phrase because it, it brings to light how much progress there's been in multiple myeloma um, and sometimes how much we take for granted because mm-hmm. uh, that, that kind of puts the millennial part of it in there. Uh, and I myself have a total millennial, you know, I'm not sitting there doing bone marrows, I'm just like looking at fish reports, you know. So, so uh, I'm, I'm part of that as well.
0: So I wonder, I mean, I think I agree with you. I think that's a good point that I think, you know, you take for granted that uh, we're going talk about a thing like MRD before we didn't even talk about response, you know? Right. Right. Um, When new therapies come along that push disease to lower thresholds, we invent new ways to quantify the disease. You know, uh, pre-Imatinib in in CML, uh, it was complete hematologic response. You didn't talk about BCR-level transcript.
1: You didn't get close to it. Right.
0: And now you're all talking about, you know, 10 to the power of minus 6 or wherever the hell you are with that. Yeah. It's always moving.
1: Yeah. It's Um, the dog poop analogy. (laughs) You've heard that, right? MRD is the dog poop on the carpet. You look deep enough, you're going to find it. (laughs) That's why I call it Mardine <laughs> myeloma. I see. yeah. Oh, uh, that's another good one. <laughs> yeah. That's anemia. That's, that's what they right. Call it.
0: Okay, but here's what I was wondering. I wonder if you think that the young people miss uh, some things, which is, um, you know, sometimes I feel like people don't have experience giving. Like when you're in a tough situation, in like relapse refractory myeloma, sometimes you give VDPs and you take them, and if you have cells, you give you give mel again and give cells again. And I think young people sometimes they're reaching for I don't know the blinatumabs, the selinexors. The panobinastats, hopefully not too much, but um, they're reaching for the new drugs when sometimes you can get somebody uh, back to where you need them to be with some of the older drugs, but you maybe have a little experience with both.
1: Yeah, I've done all of those, uh, all of the above, and some of them work and some of them don't. And I think when I'm getting to a point, and this is just my own practice way, but if I'm getting to a point where you have to give pace-based therapy there better be something right after that that you're planning. Like you're taking them to clinical trial or you have something in plan because that's not a long-term solution. It's a bridge to something. It's a bridge to something. And so nowadays I think people do that less because – if there isn't a bridge to something, they are more likely to have the conversation, you know, like, okay, I could do this. It'd be one thing if you would give the pace and that person's going to make it to their daughter's wedding two months from now. That's different. But without that, um, I think you have to have a real conversation with people. And maybe what it is, is that we're more comfortable with death now. I don't know. Um, but uh, that could be a flip side of it, you know, yeah. we're uh, and I wouldn't say giving up, but we're, maybe we're more comfortable with saying, I want you to have quality of life so I could either have you in the hospital for this many weeks with this aggressive therapy, or um, we could do this in clinical trial or it's not going to happen and i just don't know what the right answer is but i think you're right that uh people are willing are less willing to do those sort of you know archaic <laughs> chemo regimens they do actually still do them in, in preparation for car t and all that stuff sure, but, to get you yeah there.
0: but you're right i think as a destination it's not as popular as it once was I right there is something about the zeitgeist that has changed from total therapy to now where we would think total therapy is kind of a bit uh, yeah a, a bit big, much, a bit yeah. much. <laughs> yeah
1: but we'll maybe we'll bring cars in the front so we'll see
0: let me ask you a question about myeloma, and compared to other tumor types. Here's the question that I mull over, and I'm curious what you think. Um, you know, in multiple myeloma, there are no, in, in newly diagnosed conditions, there are a number of uh, cytogenetic abnormalities that you consider high risk. And how to treat a high risk patient is a subject of perennial debate, um, because you know we don't have robust randomized control trials in every single high risk subgroup about what to do. And there are different schools of thought. I think there's some people, few in myeloma among experts, who would argue that you can just give VRD to everybody. Uh, there are a lot of people who think about implementing more treatments up front early, dera uh, DERA-VRD, or, or, or adding carfilzomib upfront or something like that, um, and then dual maintenance, uh, you know. Um, but if you think about a field like kidney cancer and high-risk kidney cancer uh, based on MSKCC criteria, I guess the question I have is, um, kidney cancer doctors, I think, are reluctant to change their practice even in sub high-risk subgroups uh, in the absence of randomized control trials in those subgroups. Myeloma doctors, I think, are more willing to embrace differences in practice based on, I think, circumstantial data such as better response rates and and retrospective analyses and these kinds of things. Do you one, I guess, do you think this is true um, that there are sort of different standards of evidence based by tumor type, maybe even culturally? Um, and two, if you agree with the premise, why do you think that might be?
1: Yeah, I think that uh, you're right that some single center data uh, can sway people's uh, way that they approach because there just isn't an answer. And particularly for high risk myeloma, I think we're of course diagnosing it more often because we're sending fish on everybody. Um, And so I, and also Someone with high-risk myeloma is going to potentially live three years, right? So that's three years. You have to tell this patient, like, you want to tell them you did everything possible. So you're not going to wait for some randomized trial to tell you that you did everything possible three years from now. (laughs) Like that's not going to be of any use. You have to hedge your bet, you know, you you have to guess, you have to make your best guess and say, I'm going to do what I think is going to help you to live the longest. And I'm going to tell you that. After having heard a lot of high-risk data this past ASCO, um, what I've come to the conclusion on is it's not what you use, it's how long you use it. Um, and you can use VRD forever, you can use KRD forever, KR, um, but it, you have to do something slightly more intense and for a long time. And that, I think that's, I don't think it's enough to get four cycles of Dara rvd up front and say you've treated high-risk. That That's not going to do it. Uh, you have to have some plan, some long game.
0: And why don't you think these other fields, they don't, they don't, um, I don't know. I feel like they don't have the zeal to, to to push the limits of their therapies. Or do you think that,
1: yeah. Um, That's a good question. I don't know why, uh, you know, and I, I can't speak for any other field because sure. I'm so, you know, so pigeonholed in my, just a plasma cell, okay? Uh, but uh, but I think maybe that the, the survival of those patients might be shorter, and so there's less... Um, Less time to work on these things for these these patients. That's a possibility. But uh, we have a little bit more breadth of time. Not all seventeen p's are the same, and not all four fourteens are the same. So there is a smattering of patients where we can you know try this and try that.
0: You call bite. Cells uh, uh, by specific antibodies. Uh, you call them um, eHarmony. The eHarmony.
1: <laughs> that's right. And Not I, the Tinder. Because
0: no. <laughs> <No. laughs> oh, uh, that that would be a comment about durability.
1: Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah That duration, would just just like I don't of think the, the cells
0: cell, is gonna be brief. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: I don't think uh, the cells that. can uh, swipe right or, or left. Yeah, yeah.
0: So eHarmony, you think uh, because I guess the the funny thing is because it it brings together a T cell and, and the
1: cancer yeah, cell. Yeah, it's the matchmaker. It's the matchmaker. I call actually the Indian matchmaker As you know I call SEMA from Mumbai. Uh huh. Yeah. Of course, yeah. watch the, yes the, i dressed up uh, as for <laughs> halloween
0: <laughs> by the way that was a very addictive show <laughs> it's, totally it's, it's right. a whole nother
1: podcast yeah um
0: okay uh but the reason you don't call tinder is because you hope that uh, the responses are more durable than what yes, you yes we them. want
1: a more lasting <laughs> partnership than tinder yeah
0: um that's a good analogy um you know here's here's my my question about cellular therapy i wonder if you think about it this way um with idacel we see um you know, I think the response was tremendous. I don't think anyone, uh, you know, uh, hitting it out of the park with Bluebird. Um, and I think we knew that very early on. You know, I remember the, the first report of the phase one. And once they reached sort of target doses, any, any decent dose, they had like tremendous responses. I guess the thing that I think some people were disappointed by um, was that I think people were hoping that with CAR T cell therapy, you would do what you had hither, hitherto been difficult to do in myeloma, which is get rid of the last stubborn plasma cell. And I guess when we saw in the, the approval data that median PFS is something like 8.8 months, um, you know, that I think, you know, that's, I mean, I, I'll be curious to know how you think about it, but I guess some people feel like I was hoping that there'd be some curative fraction there. What do you think? How do you think about this?
1: Yeah, I think that myeloma is a really difficult disease because it's, um, it, it's, it's kind of got some, uh, personality issues so if you will and I think this, the cells that cause problems are the differentiated plasma cells and those are BCMA positive so my theory my feeling is that um, all some of these CAR-T therapies do a really good job of getting rid of every single BCMA positive cell and some do better than others because maybe the density of BCMA yeah. may be different there's an interaction fine But what they don't do is get rid of progenitor cells that are BCMA negative. And I do think there's a myeloma progenitor cell that we haven't yet identified, which may not be consistently the same amongst every patient. We just don't know because we haven't identified it. So uh, it's kind of like searching for something you don't know what you're looking for. It's like doing one of those black puzzles with just the black pieces and no (laughs) no borders. Mm -hmm. So that's why I think there isn't a plateau or a longstanding one on the curve. Um, It's possible that some of the newer CAR T cells uh, and some of the new innovative ways of, of approaching these may address this, but I suspect the BCMA CAR T cell story is not closed as far as cure goes. I mean, uh, sorry, I should say, I don't think it's curative yet.
0: You don't think it's curative yet, Mm -mm. but you are optimistic that we may yet elucidate some target that gets us to the last cell.
1: Yeah, I think that, you know, people that are much smarter than I am are hopefully doing work to understand the genesis of myeloma. This comes from smoldering and MGUS even before that, uh, to understand, you know, what is it that you can identify as a progenitor cell in myeloma? And that takes a lot of uh, scientific exploration and back and forth, and back and forth, and, and patients and people haven't been able to do it yet consistently. So I mean, that's the idea between this like dual car or CD19 idea. Um, so that data takes a long time to mature. But I do think that there is some other cell out there that, um, or in there, I should say, uh, that we're not hitting. And then as soon as that thing wakes up, boom, people mm-hmm. uh, progress and they progress with BCMA positive disease.
0: Right. Okay. Interesting. Yeah, I think that's been sort of an interesting question there. One of the things about IdaCell is the gap between the median PFS and the median OS is long. Uh, quite long. 8.8 to what was the median OS like? 20, 24, 24 months.
1: 24 months?
0: Yeah. You're about to say something. How do you, how do you interpret that?
1: Uh, we have other drugs after. You know, it's just. No, the median p the actually the difference was bigger in the phase one data. It was thirty four months for the OS with yes. a similar PFS, um, and so that I think was reflective of the fact that people got other treatments like melfluven or I, I'm you know who sure. I'm selling stuff. Sure, sure, sure. There were other things, and, and I think now that second twelve months is that you know they're getting other therapies, and maybe they're redoing Venomastain and all things that sure. they didn't get before. So um, that didn't surprise me uh, so much. And I don't think it's so much reflective of Idacel, but it's reflective of other things that you can I use in myeloma. It. The
0: question I always have is that, you know, my understanding is like when these trials were run, they were hot commodities. Every oh, yeah. patient I knew in a tri-state area oh, yeah. wanted these things. And so what resu- what happens at the level of the trial list is you end up getting a list, a long list of people who are potentially eligible, but you don't have all the spots on day one. you got spots that come and go. And so I kind of think of it like um, the wait list at a really good New York City restaurant. You get like hundreds of people line up and they tell you it's like a five hour wait for Momofuku or something like that. Something mm-hmm. You get a long wait. And then what happens is there's attrition. There's some people along the list who keep dropping yeah, out. They go yeah. to Taco Bell. They go to Taco Bell because they're hungry. Yeah, right. So the right. people who sit, sit in that Momofuku right outside, stand out there for five hours to get, the, you know, to get the food, are the people who when they entered, they were less hungry. And I guess the analogy here is that to some degree, the long CAR-T wait list in early phase studies kind of selects for slow growing tempo biology.
1: I yes and no because and every center will say they did it differently. I don't it's, it's I just cleaned up my office, but I used to have this like calendar yes. of like like when everybody was going and and what the you know input was gonna be, who was the who was in and we would just fight with each other. The the four of us at the time mm-hmm. in the myeloma group here, just fight with each other about the slots, who was gonna get yes. what because it was like this double dutch, like one rope is going this way and another rope is going this way. You got a bunch of slots that may come to you and you have some patients that may be ready. And those two have to come together um, and, and, and fit together um, to, to have the exact person be at the exact time. Who's not too sick, but sick enough right. uh, because people had to be progressing. And I, this was like a craziness, that whole 2018, how we try to get a bunch of patients on this trial and they had to be in that window. And I would just call these local docs and get this S P E B, and he's like, chains and make sure they're progressing and imwg it was it was crazy um, and so it shouldn't have been that hard but that's what it was so i don't we had some people that were really sick and they made it two years uh on car t so I, I was i was happy to see some of that and some people that i thought were going to do great and they didn't do great
0: that's interesting um well i can't imagine yeah to, to meet all the ic and, and be in the time when you need them because the spots open up is very interesting yeah so I'm curious about, I guess, I guess uh, to shift back to career questions, I'm curious about two things. One, I guess, um, what made you switch institutions, and what makes people switch institutions in general? And then the second thing is, I guess maybe the or maybe the second question is the first question, which is, you know, what is your career goal, Nina Shal? What is your career goal?
1: Well, we'll start with the first, I don't really answer this thing. But... I think similarly to what I said of gone are the days of using, you know, melphalan and all that and we have millennials, gone are the days of the lifers. The, there are no more lifers in medicine. People that stay in the same institution for 20 years doesn't happen anymore. Why? Because we're all a little impatient. We all have a little ADHD about, and I don't mean to make light of that word, but or the acronym, but we are a little bit impatient about what's next. What else is out there? You know, is the grass greener? Um, and could we be more? A bigger fish in a smaller pond or a bigger fish in a bigger pond? Uh, what happened to me was that the field changed. So at the time that I started being an Oncologist as an attending, the only way to do myeloma cellular therapy was as a transplanter. But uh, it's funny that you mentioned this thing about anesthesiologist to the surgeon. That's how I felt. I felt like being a myeloma transplanter was being an anesthesiologist to the myeloma docs because I didn't take care of myeloma patients and make decisions about induction, relapse, refractory myeloma, and all these trials. I just got did their Mel two hundred and I sent them back. And I really did feel like my career was just like starting to slow down because industry had taken over cell therapy and, and you once you're that in the BMT happened division. I was in the BMT division mm-hmm. and once that happened there wasn't all the mentorship in the world and all that wasn't going to change it wasn't going to change industry industry ultimately decides where these trials go who gets them who's at the podium and I was missing out and I had myeloma FOMO and uh, FOMOM as I called it <laughs> and so I said well I don't want to do that anymore like I want to do something different and I Thought about staying where I was, where I could have then switched over to just do myeloma, but then I couldn't do transplant, and I love doing transplant because I did, you know, the dendritic cell vaccine trial with the CTN, and I, I, really do think transplant has a role, so I wanted to go to a place that did both, and that's why I ended up here serendipitously. Actually, I just ended up here. They were looking, and I actually had interviewed for this job as a fellow, really? going to faculty, uh-huh. uh, but it didn't work out back then. But so I came back uh, for the second time, and um, it, and it happened. It was just the best move I could have ever made.
0: And, and, and go on. What, what has made it so good?
1: Um, one, I get to do more of what I want to do. Like I, I was able to sort of grow into myself a little bit and do clinical trials of interesting things that are new. I completely credit uh, Tom Martin and Jeff Wolf for giving me opportunity. They just said, go. They could have taken all the opportunity and been the first author and been the PI, and they said, no, you take it, you go. And um, I really give them a lot of credit uh, for just being so generous to me uh, and and they let me do what I wanted and they supported me and they made sure that the institution supported me. Uh, so I felt very well supported when I came here, even though um, we're not the biggest team division, right. you know, and you know, we're not Boston, you know, all those things, but but I felt supported and the people, the people were key. And whereas I would have said my previous cool. institution was a big cancer center Maybe there's a little more hierarchy there. It was more Texas-based. It was a little bit more formal. Here, it's very casual, and it just it vibed well with me, and that's not a better or worse thing. It was the right thing for my place in life at the that's time.
0: Right. And the size is different. I mean, how many BMT faculty are there in Anderson? Like 20, 30.
1: Sure. And just, just BMT. Just BMT. I mean, leukemia is like another 20, 30. You know, so... Uh, it's a massive
0: leukemia, BMT myeloma is almost bigger than our whole hemolec division. Pretty much. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. That's why they can have a big party
0: at Ash. (laughs) Yeah. Correct. Or used to. Yeah. I I missed the, I missed the invite. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so I don't know. How do you feel about the size? You know, you went from being in like a huge, everyone's talking about BMT all the time to, um, you know, you're one of what, six myeloma doctors here. Yeah.
1: Yeah. It was four when I came. Now we're six. Um, I like the way we are now because I like to have a family situation. I truly feel like the myeloma docs are a family. That that's my thing. But not all people like to do that. Not all people like to be in a family. Um. So so somebody would be better more happy in a bigger department where you can kind of just do your own thing. Uh. Obviously, there's more accountability when you're in a smaller group. Um. But there's also a lot more um, facile nature. You know, you can shift things and start new interests in your department. Uh. One of the things that. I have been really interested in bringing in our myeloma group as patient experience research. And so with the help of my fellow Rahul Banerjee, we've been trying to do that. And he's been great because that's something we didn't do here um, as an interest. So, and for example, Sandy's been doing amyloid. So you just have more flexibility to do the things you care about when you're a smaller group.
0: What are your thoughts on, you know, you strike me as somebody who's just always, um, I've, you know, I've never seen you not enthusiastic. I've never seen you not energetic. <laughs> Uh, do you get tired? No, I guess my, my question is this, um, you know, it, it, you have this personality type, always having energy, always being really, you know, positive person. Um, I think that's why people like to hear you on the phone. Uh, I think that's also, uh, it, it's interesting in a time where, you know, I hear so much rhetoric about burnout, uh, burnout, fatigue, and I know a lot of people who are faculty at universities at different levels, and they call me, and I'll tell you what, if I were to quantify amount of how much time we spend, 60-70% of the conversation is complaining about things. Um, you don't strike me as somebody who complains about
1: things too much, or do you? I could probably complain in my head, but i figured out that like I'm not, I'm probably not going to change very much by complaining. So okay. I might as well just do it until I can't do it, and then I'll complain. But I
0: and Berna, how do you think about Berna? Yeah,
1: all of this is related. One, I'm not one of these people that's going to be a department chair. That's not my deal, because why is that? I don't want to get more email. I'm the I'm the leader of small things. I, I'm like an internal leader like you need one process change I can do that uh, you want to make sure that we're gonna now have printers in every room in the in the that was my idea in the clinic so it's five seconds shaved off the appointment that's me you know I do small changes um, I'm not a department chair I'm not somebody who wants to do evaluations I'm not any of that but I am somebody who wants to make change and that I think I can do better as a soldier than a general uh, so so that's one thing regarding burnout. I'm part of it too. And I think this past year has been incredibly difficult for us uh, as physicians in general. And I'll speak as a general, because we've had so many changes we've had to implement. And it seems like we're the only ones who have to do certain things sometimes. Um, And then- academic oncology, severe burnout. The reason for that, in my opinion, is we all used to travel, see each other at conferences, go to investigator meetings. That was the fun part, right? That's what made it worth it. Sure, we all like doing clinic, but two days a week, you know? So, um, And sometimes we don't do two days because we are doing an ad board or whatever. Those are fun things. They keep you nimble. They keep you communicating with other people and they keep you connected. And I actually have an entire tight group of friends from a you know, around the world, but specifically in the U.S. for myeloma dogs. You know, we have our they See Myeloma Consortium (DMC), um, and, <laughs> and there's we, a lot. That there's a, a, oh yeah, that's a whole hashtag in <laughs> itself. Sometimes we let people in. That, yeah. That's another story. Um, but uh, so we have that, and and I am good friends with these people, and I can't see them now. That like kind of there was nothing to look forward to. There was just work to do. There was more email. There was more. Zoom, there was more just sitting on my butt and like, you know, like burning less calories per day. So, so I think that did happen to all of us, but I, I feel that my number one drive, I learned this in the pandemic is being with other people. And that is a lesson I'm taking away. Um, and I will, I will always prioritize that. If that means I have to have a lesser job, if it means I'm not a department chair, if it means I'm not this, it doesn't matter. I want to work with people that I'd like to work with because at the end of the day, we're people and we like people, or maybe I do.
0: <laughs> well that's well put I am mean, it's, it's very well put very interesting and I think you've articulated something that I hadn't quite put my finger on but I think you're putting your finger on well which is that whatever um, for people like you who are really sort of experts in a disease um, whatever disease you're in if you're in an academic university there's almost two departments you belong to you belong to UCSF of course we love you but you also belong to the myeloma expert group
1: the I call them. My- that.
0: <laughs> that's a good one yeah, yeah. Totally. and they are celebrities yeah Um uh you know um you belong to that group and the thing about that group is you see each other a lot a lot a lot. all
1: the time more than the people at UCSF actually Correct. yeah
0: because you're going to the same string of conferences, mm-hmm. you're going to often the same sessions mm-hmm. uh, people like to meet up after and you know get a drink uh, uh, and uh, and 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 so those people, um, you know, I see more and more in the era of Twitter where you see that like, oh, you know, this person who does lung cancer at City of Hope is really good friends with this person who does lung cancer at Dana-Farber, and their relationship might be closer than this person's relationship with their colleague at City of Hope. And in Absolutely. And the number of hours spent together is higher on these sorts of things. And what you're saying is COVID totally cleaved that. That's all done.
1: It, it made it less personal. I mean, I don't even see my people here, you know, but I, you know, for example, one of my best friends in myeloma is Amritha Krishnan, who is at City of Hope. Mm-hmm. And we talk to each other all the time um, and do all these meetings, but like I haven't seen her physically in like a year and a half. Uh, same with Saad, like all these people that I, that I love that I feel so close to. Um, and yeah, it, that's just been something disappointing, but necessary.
0: And then, how do you navigate? Uh, I hear that these groups, whatever the tissue tumor mm-hmm. types, there's friends and there's frenemies.
1: <laughs> oh, yeah. That's less so in myeloma because we're pretty cool. Okay. Um, but I think in some other malignancies, I will not name names, uh-huh. some of the more acute malignancies, uh-huh. shall we say, um, there are some frenemies um, and some competition. And what I think is true. And this is true in academic oncology, everybody wants to be the lead author, the lead presenter, or yeah. all this stuff. Okay, how do we how do we make this better for everybody? I don't wanna see the same person presenting. More than once per conference because if the same person is presenting more than once that means that another person didn't get an opportunity why who cares like there should be and i've asked the drug companies a couple of things you know can you have a different investigator for every single one of your trials not the same can you have half women investigators half men investigators and junior faculty don't worry about taking a chance on them because they, everyone started somewhere. And can you just diversify your lead investigator pool? We all know that industry, they prep the slides, they prep the, you know, it's, it's their thing. What they want is someone to deliver the message. And we can do that as younger folks. It doesn't have to be the same people. Um, and I think it would actually do a lot of the industry well, good to have a more diverse, um, you know, sort of cheering squad, I guess, if you will.
0: If they were, if I, I think you're right, and if they were wise, they would, they would take the opportunity. Because yeah. Because if they don't take it soon, they're going to pay the price, I suspect.
1: Yeah. I think the way they
0: calculate it is they feel like um, that um, they want some people to be the first or last author because that's a brand. And you're part of the brand of that individual. And I think maybe this is the part of academic medicine where you know, I won't pick my myeloma, I'll pick uh, who I won't name anybody. So I'm just figuring, I'll think of a different disease in, my yes. mind. in In a different disease type, there are some diseases where there's like one person mm-hmm. who's the first and last author on everybody's study. And this person is it's impossible, this person could be the highest accruer on any of these studies, let alone all of the studies. Um, but I think the industry thinks of that person as like the brand, and you know what you're getting. And you know this person has a certain reputation around how they um, – I don't know, the the person will have an opportunity to comment on the manuscript, the person will have an opportunity to make some changes. This is the kind of person who's, they're going to make some changes, they're not going to make too many changes, they're not going to make your life too hard. Uh, If there's a rebuttal or something like that, they're going to make your life kind of easy as the industry. And so I think they've succumbed to that historically, and that's why it is the way it is. But going forward, I think, as you've put it, they would do well, I think, to uh, look across the field of, of all the people who are doing this work and spread the love out a little bit.
1: Yeah, I think there's so much talent in academic oncology. All of us think about the people that are in academic oncology now who are rising up. They're all on Twitter. They're all socially a lot more aware. It's not just your silo institution anymore. You talk to other people, you work with other people and at your institution, you don't just see patients anymore. Everyone has some like other role quality or, you know, teaching, or, you know, so everyone has a lot more color to them, a lot more facets that they can bring to the table. So uh, we should take advantage of how we are all f- functioning in a new world. Some do technology, some do teaching, some, you know, to bring more color to the industry-based tr- trials.
0: You talk about social media. That was one of the topics I was going to hit with you because, you know, um, you're on Twitter, but I know you're not an addict.
1: No. You're not an
0: addict. And I, here's how I know you're selective not an addict. Twitter. Yeah. Yes. Okay. So my diagnosis is correct. <laughs> you're not an addict because an addict is tweeting around the clock. Correct. You're not tweeting around the clock. You're, you're, you're targeted. You use it. You use it well, um, but you don't get sucked in. I may have known a few addicts in my life. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm sure you do. I, I've heard, I read about a few. Mm-hmm. Um, so here's my question. You know, a trainee comes to you, a junior person, they ask you for your social media advice. What do you tell them? How do you strike the balance? How do you use it effectively but don't let it use you?
1: Yeah, um, that's a really good question because they, I think, because I think social media can suck us all in whatever platform, you know, whether it's social or it's work, social media. One, I only use Twitter for professional things. If it's, you know, if it's my personal stuff, I use Facebook or whatever, uh, which apparently like my kids are like, that is so old. You know, (laughs) like, Oh my God, grandma uses Facebook. But anyway, sorry. Um, but I think that, uh, If you are a person that's known more for what you're doing on Twitter than what you're doing at work, that's going to be a problem because that means you're spending more time doing that than you are at your primary job, unless your primary job is to be a promoter from your institution and you're the social media chair. Fine. That's different. Um, We all kind of have to do it, right? We all have to do it because uh, we have to... It actually helps us know things more. I basically only tweet at conferences um, or events or things that are published that I am interested in, but I don't do like Saturday tweeting for nothing uh, because I'd rather spend time doing other things on a Saturday. So um, I don't know. That's just me. The advice that I'd give to my junior faculty is to um, tweet content that's real you know don't be tweeting too many opinions just yet until you feel comfortable in the field uh that you you can really comment intelligently on both sides um and don't let it take up more time than it should be in the sense that you should do the manuscript first I
0: think that's well that's good advice I guess I'm impressed because (laughs) I think it's um you know I, I mean I think I agree with everything you say um I mean I think junior people I think you're right in the sense that one of the things you said that I think people don't say a lot um, which is that there's a moment in your career when you can start to give your opinion. and I, you know not that we want to like not that I want to disempower young people. I think young people often have the sharpest ideas. They have the best ideas. In fact, my, my, I'm not as sharp as I was when I was younger because <laughs> I used to think better. I used to have like ideas that were more innovative than the ideas I have these days. But one of the things that I think you have to be careful of is when you're young and you have an idea, the best way to do it is to polish it into something that really stand alone, finish that, do that, and then tweet about it. but I mean, Don't make the tweet the whole... Don't give your idea away in the tweet. Right. Um, especially if the idea is something that is counterintuitive or a lot of people don't share. Because, uh, you know, in, in that forum, it's definitely going to be misrepresented.
1: Right. That's like being on rounds as a third-year med student. Be like, I really think we should do this. Instead of, like, going checking the labs and being like, oh, okay, I think the diagnosis <laughs> is that. Maybe we should consider that. You know? You yes. Everybody yeah. had that person in their med school rounds. So, yes, I agree. You... Uh, what I think Twitter lends itself to, and social media in general, is it really allows for some people to be, um, uh, to be amplified, but without substance. And so, the and I've talked about this with some of my colleagues as well. There's people that are just like, if you just knew about them on Twitter, you think, oh my gosh, they're just an expert. But then you go PubMed them, it's like, mm. so there should be like a Twitter to PubMed index. There is. Isn't there? I've heard this.
0: Oh, okay. Well, I'll tell you about it in a 2nd But we'll finish your thought. Yeah.
1: I think that would be of, like, some use. Uh, not so much in Twitter. Who cares? But, like, if you're going to get promoted, yes. you know, like, how important are you on social media versus how much have you actually, you know, looked at this data and, and made some th- some contribution to the field? Yes.
0: Okay. Well put. Okay. So, I guess I would say I share your thing. Um, you know, I see people, I'll, I'll, give, I'll, I'll take the heat for this. I see people say that, like, oh, you know, in the future, there'll be different paths to promotion, and you'll be a full professor because you publish papers. Right, peer-reviewed you write peer review books. full professor. If you just have some really good tutorials and I'm like, no, no, you're not. <laughs> I'm
1: like, no not gosh. Now I seem like the old school and non millennial, but
0: <laughs> well, you know, mm-hmm. I'm, uh, uh, you know, I'm in the same boat. I'm like, no, you know, no, you're not. Mm-hmm. And I was like, you know, a lot of us are gonna have to be dead and long gone before you can create this system because I'm gonna not be happy with it. Um, but I guess why I think so way is that like you know it's not that i think it's it's not good to tweet and write out beds and blog etc and i do all those things and i do youtube and i'm doing this you know this podcast for the three people listening thank you three no, <laughs> um, you know for the people who happen to listen but tell your friends yeah but it's not what it's not scholarship in the sense that it's not the same effort that goes into trying to get an article into a top journal it's not so easy um, and it takes a lot of stuff and there's a push and pull between you and the reviewers between you and the editors what you want to get and what you can get and that is i think really sort of the the knife's edge of scholarship. Um, and I think that um, you're right in the sense that there is a disconnect between, I think, people who know what they're talking about um, uh, and people who appear to know what they're talking about on Twitter. Um, but the public the lay public particularly, I think, is very poor. Even journalists are poor at discerning the two. Um, you joked about that index. The index that I'm aware of is the Kardashian Index, which is an index. Um, yes, the
1: Kardashian <laughs> Index. I heard about that. <laughs> yes. So, yes. The,
0: the, the, yeah, the, the crux of the index is that it is a ratio of the number of your Twitter followers to the number of citations you've accrued. Um, and
1: I, I Yes, I saw this Yeah
0: <laughs> And it, it is used to I think uh, You know It's been used Kind of viciously Against people They call them a Kardashian You know I, And I, unfortunately I, I guess I score off the charts On the Kardashian <laughs> no, I, Not because I'm not Publishing as much as I could But because um, You know I just have too many Right to There's
1: a numerator And a denominator To this index yes, Correct Yes That's the, that's the crux of a it. A kappa and a lambda Yes, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um,
0: So, but, but here's the one thing I think it doesn't uh, account for well. I mean, I think, like, what is it trying to get at the core? I think the thing is, is the good thing it's trying to get at is, like, you know, uh, the, the thing I'll give it credit for is, like, you need to know what you're talking about. Be very good at your discipline before you're just known for commenting about it. That's, I think, the core of it. Some of the actual failures with the index are, of course, like somebody who publishes four papers in Nature in their first year as some all-star person, you know, we know such a person. I mean, I guess I think David Hyman is probably the closest to such a person in our business, uh, but that person will get crushed on the Kardashian index because citations take a long time to accrue, whereas right. followers happen overnight. We need
1: an impact-adjusted yes. index. I think this could be a nomogram or something. We See, think, okay, okay, so yeah. now you're thinking ahead. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, So if you're
0: going to do it, I think you've got to adjust impact. You know, yes. there's, there's M index, which is K, which is Hirsch index divided by years of publishing. That's one metric. Um, but, you know, you have to think about that, the problem of youth. Um, you also have to think, I think, that, um, to some degree being a good communicator is a gift and a blessing in and of itself uh you have that gift so you know but but you but um but you choose to do it uh verbally in person a lot uh, rather than you know in these forms but i mean i agree with you in, in general on all these points and i think one of the pitfalls i see is like um be if you're too strident too early in your career it's not the right time because there are lots of things you don't know
1: it's a lot of things you don't know and a lot of things we don't know
0: yeah a lot of things I... we don't know
1: and I, I would say that there's something to be said for finishing a project. And when you have published a paper from beginning to end, you've finished a project, and that takes time. And to be a finisher is actually one of the most difficult things for junior faculty or senior faculty. And this is what I teach my mentee. This is what the one of the major things I say: you have to be a finisher. I wasn't a good one, and I had to learn over time. Um, and that's why I meet, meet weekly with these guys, and I, you know, they have agendas, and and that if they can finish something, then it's okay. You can tweet about it, but just tweeting doesn't mean you actually did a project. It means you thought about something, you know, so, so I don't, um, I think we joke about it, you know, about amplification and all that stuff. And and that that's great. But I think for junior faculty, the time is better spent on being being a finisher. Just doing one project from A to Z teaches you so much. You know, all the places that you have to be. Oh nice. We thank the reviewers for their comment and totally agree. Except we're not gonna do this. You know. <laughs> and that's an art. Yes, that's an art too. You yeah, yeah review adulation. Yes. Yeah. Uh. <laughs> Totally.
0: Well, I guess I agree with you, and that's one of the things I tell people, which is, you know, the last mile is the most important, and I'm not that interested in the person who almost climbed Mount Everest. I'm interested in the person who got to the top, which means that you got to finish the damn thing. Get the paper out. And I think that I always... Uh, people people I work with will know that I always harp on this, which is like, one, finishing it means getting it from that, you know, here's all the data, here are the prelim figures, to writing it in a form that I can submit, which means it's got to be formatted correctly, and I need the abstract, and I don't want that abstract pending crap. But, you know, I need to, like, it needs to be done. And then when you get the reviews, I mean, you know, it's one thing when you've got 25 things to do, uh, like often happens in, to us in faculty. but when you're a trainee, often it's like the only thing you do. I was like, you gotta focus and just get get that done. And getting it across that last mile, that's like the it's hardest the
1: hardest part. thing. It's like getting to Eagle Scout. You know, it's just like, ah, oh, you know, that last review or like the second round of review is like, oh, actually, can you do this analysis? And you're like, oh, now I need a meeting with a statistician again. So that's just you know that's just painful. That's just you know, like very, very painful. So it is really crossing that last part of it.
0: So I actually advise people, in addition to that, is as you choose a mentor, when you're a fellow, you got such a narrow window to try to put your thumbprint on something. And you got to be cognizant that there are a lot of lovely people in this line of work who aren't good finishers. And, 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 and this is bad, actually, but I said, like, if the mentor, ha- I was like, if the mentor hasn't published 10 papers in the last year, I was like, you need to, the mentor needs a mentor and you need to find a new mentor. So yeah, just, yeah, know. yeah.
1: Um, and it's hard to know because sometimes those papers are industry driven and sometimes, you know, it, it really is hard to know it. it Finding the right mentor fit, it is, it's hard.
0: That's another good point you make, which is that I feel like um, if I'm interested in somebody, I'll print out a bunch of their papers and I'll read them and I can sniff the ones that they've written. And there are a few people who are no, you know, I mean, obviously there's some things you can look at, author characteristics, like they're the first or only, or they're like, there's two authors and the other person is like their trainee or something. So like, it's much more likely that they had a role in that writing. Right. But when you start talking about, um, you know, partition survival analyses, very complex survival analyses that I know, I know this MD don't know this stuff. That's
1: right. I'm like, they
0: don't know this analysis. And then like the, all the middle authors are like employees of like the, the firm. I'm like, yeah, I know that. that oh, they wrote, totally. They I mean, that, this yeah. is,
1: everybody knows, especially with, for example, sponsored trials, et cetera. Yes. That happens all the time. Medical writers and such,
0: and so, but I mean, if you really want to get a sense of like how somebody thinks and how they operate, you got to find the papers that they wrote and then read those papers, and then you kind of get a glimpse into
1: it. Yeah, yeah, and it's hard to like pick out everything. You know, people have two hundred publications on their CV. It's hard to know you pubmed them. Plus, my name is Shaw, so forget it. Like, <laughs> 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 if you pubmed me, you're gonna get all sorts of like nephrology and whatnot. I
0: but, mean, <laughs> orchid ID. To get yeah, them out yeah, of
1: totally, totally. Uh, but yeah, it, it is worth. But just interviewing each mentor and the mentee. Together should do that. You know, you should each meet each other and figure out if it's a good fit.
0: Okay, my last question for you because I don't want to take a too i time. We've already gone over an hour. I flew by in an instant, and, <laughs> and it's it's really like three hours of content because you do talk fast. Um,
1: <laughs> you have to instead of doing two x, you have to do half x. <laughs> <laughs> I,
0: you know, I, I I pride myself. I want people to listen to this podcast, and they were unable to listen to two x. That's my goal in life. Yes.
1: Um,
0: so here's my question: Work-life balance. Um, how do you think about it? What do you tell your trainees? I guess I'll leave
1: it there. Yeah, work-life balance is a different thing for different people. And first, I think people have to know themselves. This is the hardest thing. When you're 35 and you're starting your first job, what is important to you is not the same as when you're 45. And you have to accept that you're going to change as time goes on. So that's the first thing. Second is you have to be honest with yourself. Like, if you do not like working on the weekends, don't take a job where you work on the weekends. And if you don't like commuting to work, don't take a job. We're going to have to commute an hour to work. And, and these are all important things because... When you make your decision about work-life balance, if the um, if the factors are in your favor and you've chosen around those, it's going to be easier to balance that. With that in mind, I think all of us have a work-life balance problem. How many of us check email on Saturday and Sunday? All of us, right? And we all work on Saturdays and Sundays, and we all work during vacation, and we all work on the plane, and all of these things. And I don't think medicine is the only place that people are doing it. It's other places. But at some point... Um, you have to check each other. And so my best friend and I check each other. So uh, that's (laughs) kind of a weird way to say it, but she's an oncologist also. And sometimes I say to her, you know, I think you're working a lot. And she says to me, like, maybe you're traveling a lot, you know, Um, and... I think we have to be honest with each other about that because we see each other as our practice, you know, our academic oncology community a lot more sometimes than our family sees us. And we have to, and we know when things are going in that direction. So if there's no straight answer for work-life balance, it's knowing yourself, surrounding yourself with people who will give you honest feedback and being able to sort of adjust uh, so that you can keep things that are important as a priority.
0: That's a really good answer. I guess I can also tell you're not on Twitter too much because on Twitter, <laughs> the pendulum is swung to like... You know, the social media gestalt these days where people are, I think, the, like the midpoint of Twitter, med Twitter, wherever that is. I, I think it's like closer to the point where um, uh, if you suggest to anyone that they ever have to work on a night or a weekend, you're a bad person. You know, like that's how that's how the pendulum has swung so far. And I think what you articulate is that the realistic truth that a lot of people are working nights and weekends.
1: Everybody's doing it. Everybody's doing it. And we're in a, I hate to tell
0: people this, it's like, you know, these are competitive businesses. Darwinian. You know, Exactly. And it's like it's not I was like you you have to be like you're doing someone a disservice if you try to disabuse them of the fact that um that you know in this world where there are very few spots as you go up and this system is almost some degree like Goldman Sachs, you know, mm-hmm. it's predicated on tons of people pouring in who yep. don't stick around. Um, that, that there wouldn't be a push for people to spend the extra hours on weekends and nights and such. And, and, and when it comes to patient care, you have to often because.
1: Yes. I mean, that's, that's, that's not even debatable. That's not even debatable. Yeah, but, like, I, but we're spending weekends and nights doing emails and talks and, yes. and reviewing papers and yes. all that stuff. The, the, the other, the non-patient part of it. And yes. you are right. It's Darwinian. And ultimately, um, remember when I said, I don't want to be a department chair. This is the reason because that's going to be more email and I don't want to do that. So, um, I mean, I'm just, and I wouldn't be good at it, but um, but, um, but yeah, it's those are the decisions you have to make. How many titles you're going to have and how many papers you care about, and do you really want to be the lead author? Does it make that much of a difference? It does when you're younger, and as time goes on, maybe you change your priorities.
0: I think that's right, and I think the thing people miss about Division Chief and such is that... Um, uh, often they, they are drawn to the slightly higher salary, uh, et cetera, those things. That I less. think it's the power. It's the, and the power. They're drawn to the power. Um, but the uh, amount of extra efforts to equal those oh, things. there's is, another index. Yeah, it's a diminishing, it's a diminishing return. <laughs> yep. And then yep. the other thing I think that people succumb to, this is my hypothesis, I'll give it to you, which is that um, many people in this line of work have some degree of discontent. Uh, that There are things we're grumbly about and there are things we're happy about. And We all have our, 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 Absolutely. our spot and they look at the person who's at the top and they see that person and they say, this is somebody who's, um, their thermostat is set differently. They look to be happier than where I am, they're less discontent, they're more bubbly, blah, 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 etc." And they think to themselves that if I were to someday have that job, I would have the same satisfaction. But what they don't realize is that spot uh, the selection filters for that spot is the person who is more happy uh, and that you know The people who had sort of where my thermostat is they didn't get to that spot because nobody wanted them to be the boss You know yeah, um, and so I think it's this irony that we think that these positions are so great um, In part because they I think attract you know mostly uh, often charismatic people are good talkers and those sorts of things and um, uh, although not always in this line of work. It's also some, <laughs> True. some lab rat right, who discovers something, you know, nothing gets the top. But, um, but I think that they mistake that if I were to have that spot, I would be that person's uh, sort of happiness scale.
1: Yeah. I mean, happiness is a choice, right? That's
0: right. And I, I think, think people that's... People forget that.
1: People forget that. And, you know, there's somebody who sells tacos in a truck and that person's happy. So um, things could always be better. Things could always be worse. I, I feel very blessed that I've had happiness. Um, but... I think telling someone that they're not going to have to work nights and weekends is like telling the whole, you know, med school team. Like, you don't have to look at any of the patients before we go around. But then there's that one person who's going to do it, <laughs> yes, and they're yes. going to get the A in medicine. So, yes, yes. and we all know who that person is. So, so it's just, it's the reality of where we live. And ultimately, you can always work harder. You can always get another title. You can always be in a bigger position. you have to be president of this society. There's always more to do. You have to decide your thermostat for how much is enough
0: well but I'll tell you one last joke uh, I had to I, uh, it was one year in my life maybe 2016, 2017 I did uh, just an obscene amount of travel and I won't even tell you how much but it was a lot of travel I was traveling there all over um, and because I, I I guess I was still in that phase where like I was like oh I was in the mindset of like if somebody invites you to give a lecture you go give the lecture um, and uh, your boarding group
1: one, <laughs> yeah. you roll yeah. up in there C9A yeah. did I get upgraded? Yeah. okay he's on the head of me and I <laughs> list.
0: and yeah you get upgraded a lot you know it, and, 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 and you go from like not being invited a lot to be invited a lot okay but then um i was like so done with it and i could just feel it like you know you just so cr- I, was, I was like i traveled so much i was like crippled by travel um and then david Steensman told me something at harvard uh david Steen from harvard the mds doc um, uh, before now in yeah. yeah um he told me um um, he was like, you know, you need to sit down and, and, and pick six months of your life and call it no travel six months. Like a stay case, stay bad. Stay also
1: stuff. known as COVID. Co- oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
0: uh, and then COVID hit. Yeah, you see I'm going? And then COVID hit. And I will tell you, David Steen's mom, uh, I was like, your advice has been taken. And I'm dissatisfied. <laughs> times,
1: <laughs> times three. <laughs> times three. Taken, time,
0: three. And, and now I have a new pledge, which is I'm going to pick six months and it'll be a ban on Zoom. Let me know zero minutes. What? So yeah, I'm gonna do. I'm gonna pick six months. I don't know when it's gonna happen. I'm gonna pick six in months. Retirement. No. And <laughs> you're not gonna do Zoom. Here's what I'm gonna do. You wanna talk to me? You're gonna have to have me in your office, like Nina Shah has me in your office,
1: right? now. <laughs> if you don't wanna talk to me? I'm not there. What you about know? department meetings? You gotta do Zoom. I'm gonna I either be here or they're I, not gonna be in person. Come on, they're never gonna be in person again. There's gonna be there, like for example, and we don't have to record this, but there's gonna be a part meetings that we have. Um, and we've just been like, no, we don't want to have them in person anymore, especially at institutions where there's a lot of campuses, which ours is. But um, and so that that's a that's a potential. But but going back to your thing about traveling, you know, it's like there can be there's like travel FOMO. There's like a, you think you want to it's a celebrity status. Like, you, why didn't I get invited to that talk? how come? Oh, I got invited to this. Oh my God, I'm going to go to Arkansas and get this talk. Oh my God. You know, and, and, you know, I'm going to stay in a, you know, a Hilton, you know, a house thing and a, whatever, but it's, it does get, it, there's diminishing marginal return for some of these, I think. So it, it, that's another thing that junior faculty can learn from is like some, there's an optimal amount of travel. Yeah.
0: I think and somebody told me and some of these talks not worth giving. Yeah, um, <laughs> totally. Uh, Nina Shaw, thank you so much for this. Thank you. Uh, I, I uh, uh, your, your, your concerns notwithstanding, I am going to do my six months of zero Zoom. I'm going to see about that. I, don't, I don't, don't care what the consequences are. Depart- okay. You, you, y'all ain't, you, you ain't gonna me, <laughs> <laughs> you're not going to miss me. You're not going to miss me. I'll find a way. I'm going to pick six months, and I'm never going to be on that Zoom. I can't do it anymore. I can't.
1: You've reached your Zoom MTD. I can't. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: I got two dose limiting toxicities. Yeah. I reach yeah. I reached MTD. I can't shine the light in my face anymore and talk loudly while everyone turns off their damn screens. So I don't know how my talk is being received. Oh, what's the
1: worst? It's the worst. No, I can... have all these jokes and no one's laughing.
0: <laughs> it's like dead silence. I know. I don't know if it's, like you not know, hearing. And then one more of this, oh, can, 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 can y'all see my screen? Can, yeah, can, yeah. You know, I was like, enough of the
1: case. Those are all Zoom drinking games. Like, oh, you're on mute. Drink. Can you see my screen? Drink. Oh, for some reason, my slide's not sharing. Drink. You know, these are all Zoom drinking games that should be employed, you know, whether it's the morning.
0: The, the best person is the person who, like, it's the first time they've ever opened Zoom on a Mac, and they haven't given the permission to uh, the- access their <laughs> yeah, Yes, yes.
1: <laughs> right. The initial <laughs> in, the Mac initiators. Oh, man. Yeah. Each time, there's yeah. always, it's like. There's always one. There's always one. Never share your screen. Exactly.
0: Well, Nina Shah, this is a real pleasure. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Plenary Session. Plenary Session was produced by Kiana Klossner. Music by Ian Straley and Audrey Tran. Plenary Session is not medical advice. The views and opinions expressed on Plenary Session are those of whoever said it. Until next time.